love for you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter number 2 this morning. And if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we'll take up our reading in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Apostle John, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, records these words particularly to the church at Ephesus that led us here today. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come to you one more time just to express our utter need of you. And we do need you. Father, we need you for the understanding of the text. We need you, Father, to, um, uh, to just bring the gravity and the weight, Father, of the Word of God upon our own souls. We need you to take the truth, Father, um, to the deepest recesses and bring to light the darkness, Father, that may rest upon us. We need you, Father, to... Uh, counsel needy hearts. We need you, Lord, to um, rebuke uh, sinful lives. We need you, Father, to encourage the downcast. We need you, Father, to do the impossible, to raise the dead to life. So, Lord, we, we rest wholly and completely upon you and know that it's by grace and grace alone, Father, in Christ, um, that we have any merit, that we have any hope, Father, and it's to him we look um, to be spoken to this morning. So we do pray, Father, that you would truly take the Word of God and speak um, to each of us, Father, even myself as I teach and preach, and that you would convict my own soul, and that you would make me more like your Son, Father. Our great need, Father, is to be more like you today. So may you show us Christ and all of his glory, and may we be, Father, forever changed, not only in this life, but in eternity as well. So God, we give this time to you now. Stay our hearts, um, focus our minds, and may we look to you in this moment as we approach the text. Help us to do it fervently, but also more importantly, Father, help us do it faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Bless you. Um, again, last week we took it, if you're visiting with us, we took it upon ourselves as a task to spend the next couple of months in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, finishing up the book of Mark, there's some, some, some ends that we need to, to tighten up and, and, um, and work through. We'll eventually go back and spend a couple of sermons there tying up the end of the book of Mark. But in the meantime, uh, I've felt compelled and impressed personally, but also corporately, to take us here for... Um, a couple of months and gave somewhat of just an introduction sermon into that last week and we gleaned just so briefly into chapters two and three of the churches and just so briefly into chapter one and saw that the book of Revelation is not to be um, an infinitely scary book, a finite 
uh, finitely mysterious book, um, that the Lord actually writes it so that we may understand. And he says that in chapter 1, that blessed is he who reads and, and, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Um, that word revelation in chapter 1 and verse number 1 actually means to unveil. I know that you look at the book of Revelation and you see just total mystery throughout and symbols and, and we're all looking at each other with confusion thinking, who can understand this? But the ultimate purpose of our Lord was actually to give John a book to give to the churches and subsequently by virtue of that, um, we would receive it 2,000 years later and that it would be a blessing to you. Why? Because in it, He unveils particularly, primarily, um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That if you're utilizing the book of Revelation to fill your charts and to know what the future holds, then, then you, you're mishandling the book. Now that may be there and the content may push us that way in the details, but the ultimate reason that our Lord has given us the book of Revelation is that, that He might unveil Christ to us. But this morning, as we come to Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 1, that this letter that is written, chapter 1, by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, given to John to give to the angel, to give to the churches, was given for this reason and, 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 and primarily this reason, that you may know Jesus Christ in a, in a, in a new way, in a, in, a, in a different way, that we might unveil something this morning that was before mysterious. That's the idea of a mystery in Scripture. It's not something that is ultimately unknown to all of us, but was unknown previously and is now unveiled and revealed so that all who have ears to hear and eyes to see will both hear and see and that you this morning would walk away with some understanding of who God is, of the glory of Christ, and as a result of that, what is required of each of us, and not only each of us, but also us as a corporate body. These letters are written to churches, but no doubt you'll find this morning that churches are made up of people, and that the heart of a church um, is made up of the hearts of those people, so that each individual um, this morning should examine our own hearts as much as a church should examine itself, and recognize that if we are this type of church, it is because we are this type of people, and that we need Christ to transform us continually to make us more like Himself. And may the Lord use this letter this morning to do it. This letter to the church at Ephesus. And I have to tell you that this week was one of the most convicting weeks, and I may say that a lot. Maybe that's because when God is speaking to you, it always seems the most urgent. You know? It's almost like you'll hear preachers get up, this is the most important text in all of Scripture. This is the most important sermon. I've preached the most important sermon about a hundred times. Because it was in that moment that God was speaking to me. It was in that moment that God was transforming me. It was in that moment that God gives you something that you wonder how in the rest of your life you ever glorified Him without it. You know? It's like in that moment when God is communing with you. Um, it is in that moment that He's feeding you. It's in that moment you, 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 you wonder how you were sustained without that reality. And that is the nature of, of the Christian life. So as we come to the book of Ephesus, or the, the book of Revelation and this um, letter to Ephesus, it really was just striking to me this week in my own personal life, um, and probably more so as I examine my own heart um, than it is as I examine the nature and tenor of the church, although um, that's the point here as well. 
that I used to look at the last letter as probably the most glaring rebuke and the most striking of letters, Laodicea. I mean, we love to lay it to them. I um, mean, their lukewarmness and just their clear um, abandonment of the love of God and the Word of God and just their total apostasy and the fact that Jesus Christ is outside of the church. His presence is not known among them. He stands without. That's the gravity of that letter. But I have to say that after this week, I, I think that this is probably the most striking of rebukes. That this is the doorway, as it were, into apostasy. And this is the only letter out of the seven in which the Lord actually states that He will remove their lampstand and take them out of their place. I used to think that that, that was um, applicable to all, and maybe in some sense it is. But the reality is, is that he speaks those words to Ephesus particularly and says the light and the influence that you have, um, I'm about to take away. It's going to be gone. And it may be that as sin began to grip the other churches that they had already lost that. Um, that as false doctrine and apostasy had begun to grip the church, sexual immorality and pagan idolatry, um, that the lampstand, the light, the fire, the zeal, it was already being removed, if it was not already removed. That what we have contained within this letter is a church of extreme importance. And probably within the Scriptures, the church with the most privilege they had seen God work. They had witnessed His glory. They had tasted the miracles. They had received the baptism of the Spirit. They, 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 they were the, the, the product, or, or as a result of their ministry, um, it produced havoc in the town. Um, you'll, see in just, uh, you'll hear in just a moment in Acts chapter number 19, some amazing things happened. Um, the book of Ephesians by the apostle was written. Paul ministered there. Aquila and Priscilla ministered there. John, um, it is very likely that historically the very apostle that wrote this letter ended his life there. Um, and it may very well be that they had the greatest fall because of that. Um, and that that influence was gone for one reason and one reason alone. Because they had left their first love. Um, which was... And he doesn't say necessarily. I know that I gave the digression last week of the process of decline. But, but I wasn't saying that that happens in every church. It seems here that the judgment is going to come. The great warning is, is that when I come, I'm coming quickly. That, that there seems to be a swift judgment that comes with this. There's a great warning. And that we need to heed that warning today, I believe. And repent and return if that's where we're at corporately, but also individually. So let's begin. Verse number one, you see the angel um, to Ephesus. If you're taking notes, they'll all begin with a the angel. Verse number one, to the angel of the church at Ephesus writes. Um, this has been somewhat confusing to Christians and commentators throughout the ages. Um, because many people have taken differences, different positions on who the angel is. I'm not going to go extremely in-depth in this. I'm just going to simply state my position um, because I think that most of us are on the same page. If not, next week I can address it. Uh, but two primary positions. It's a guardian angel or it's a pastor. The term angel comes from the original word that literally just means messenger. You'll find throughout the Old Testament as well as the New, it's often used of, of actual angels. 
um, spiritual beings that have given, been given guard or special tasks or special messages to proclaim. But it's also been given to God's servants, His, 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 His human instruments who proclaim His message. And I'm convinced here that when he writes to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, he's writing to the pastor or the elder of the church, and they are to, 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 to give this warning to, um, to the local congregation here at each of these um, locations. So we see... Um, the angel or the pastor. Number two, we see the author. And we're going to move quickly through these because I really want to get to the point. And the author, who is the author? The author is Christ himself. John is not on a hobby. Uh, he doesn't have a hobby horse. He's not sitting, uh, you know, uh, he's not on his soapbox uh, that morning. Um, what we established last week in verses 9 through 12 of, of Revelation chapter number 1 that this message was received by John according to the Spirit of God as he saw Christ high and holy and lifted up. And we saw that great image. And that, 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 that image is, 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 is glorious and majestic and high and holy. And it establishes the authority of the letter. John's not coming saying, I come in and of myself and I have a message for you. You know, I'm applying wisdom and principles that I've learned throughout Scripture and Proverbs, the Old Testament, the poetry, the Psalms. And I think that you're on a path to destruction, right? He's not prophetic in that sense. What he's saying here is, is, is that this is literally the Word of God. And that's the, that's the authority behind it. And you see that in these words, these things he says in verse number two. That, 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 that this is Christ saying, in essence, thus saith the Lord. Um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the time of, uh, of the New Testament being written, then you'll know that during the time of Jesus Christ and the apostles, that chances are they read from a Greek, New, uh, Greek Old Testament. That... Around the time of Alexander the Great conquering the known world, they established a common language. And the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And that was probably the common Bible of the day. Well, in that Greek Old Testament, you would find this exact same construction. And you, it, would, you, it would be translated like this. Not these things say, but thus saith the Lord. That the impact and the emphasis here is that the, the church at Ephesus would know that this is not coming from John. That John stands in line with prophets of old, like Moses and Isaiah and Amos and Obadiah and those men who come to a godless nation most of, most of the time and they pre preach a prophetic message. Thus they say, thus saith the Lord. Church, I want you to know this morning is what he's saying. That when this letter comes forth, there's no argument to be made. This isn't coming from the, the, the pastor's um, uh, closet. This isn't coming from um, his ideas. It's not coming from the latest sword in the trial. It's not coming from an editor uh, or magazines. It's coming from God. And John stands as a prophet recording the words of God and that when these words go forth, he stands as a prophet proclaiming with authority God's Word to this people. Thus, perk up your ears. Open your eyes. May your hearts be tender. Because this is indisputable. This is not debatable. This is not a business meeting where we get together and we discuss the future of the church. This is God speaking. Okay? When God speaks, we listen. And if we don't, we, we, our, our, our lives end in utter destruction. And that's the idea. Perk up your ears. 
So you see the authority. We see the angel. We see um, the author. It's Christ Himself. We see the authority which with He speaks. And number four, we see the audience. Again, we're moving fast. We'll slow down here in just a minute, though. I promise. Who's the audience? The audience that John is, is delivering the message to and giving to the angel um, for the purpose of is the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. Um, a little history on Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, is a city. It's a town. Um, but it's not just any city. It's the foremost, probably the foremost, the most powerful city in all of Rome. It is arguably the most important city in, in all of Asia Minor. Ephesus was the largest seaport in Asia Minor. It was a mighty commercial export. It had a population of more than probably, um, historians estimate, a quarter of a million people. It was a huge metropolitan area center. It would be similar to Los Angeles or New York or, or Atlanta or one of these great cities who wield extreme power and influential um, within America and ultimately within the world because America is so prominent. They too wielded great political power. Um, three of the cities here that are listed in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus, Pergamon, and Smyrna, were all rivals for the preeminence of being the greatest for the Roman province of, of Asia. Travelers from Rome would regularly come for various pur purposes. They would land in the harbor. They would travel from the harbor to the center of the city on a 35-foot wide marble avenue that paved their way. Lined with tall columns, Ephesus was uh, one of the most wealthy cities in the Roman province of Asia during that time. I mean, they had stadiums, they had gymnasiums, they had libraries, they had marketplaces. And that may not seem like a big deal to you because we're in America in the land of, the, of comfort and pleasure. But the reality is, is that 2,000 years ago, this was a place to see. This was a site to go. This was a vacation spot. This is a place you'd die to see. Um, it, was, it was amazing in the, in the known common world. At the same time, it was one of the most pagan and idolatrous places you would ever find. It was a haven for the magical arts and the occult practices. There were temples there to Roman emperors. And I believe it's in Acts chapter number 19, at the birth of this church, that actually the, the, the statement was that it was the guardian of the, of the temple of Diana, or te of, te of emperor worship. Sorry, the temple of Diana was there, which is also one of the seven known wonders of the world during that time. It was a massive structure um, given to, 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 to pagan idolatry and just sexual immorality. Thousands of prostitutes were employed there in the temple. And during their worship, they would just give themselves over to the lewdness and crudeness um, of all that you could think. Uh, but it was also uh, the leading place of emperor worship, worship to Caesar, statues and temples um, housed it. Um, it was just a cesspool of immorality um, uh, beyond imagination. You know, you, you, you get guys who stand up and it's like, this is the worst we've ever seen. You know, gas is $4 a gallon. I know it's bad. And I, I cringe every time I pull that E350 into the gas station. I do. And try to fill that thing up um, every week or two. Um, but at the same time, um, that's because we, uh, we think that it's as worse as it's ever been because we are historically and geographically removed. We are a unique nation and we are as arrogant as could be um, to think that um, you know, we are just the center of, of the spiritual condition of God throughout all of history and, and the nature of the church. Um, this was a godless place where sexual immorality was, was worshipped openly inside and outside the temple. Occult, magical practices were going on and it was just a place... Um, 
that most of us would think it's time to move away and find a more godly, godly town. But this is the place where God worked. Man, God worked in amazing ways. You find in Acts chapter number 19 that the Apostle Paul, um, by the inspiration of God, no doubt, um, is, 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 is on his mission. I mean, he's a church planter. He's leading. I mean, he's raising up churches. He's teaching and preaching. And God in his providence and by the Spirit of God brings him along the way of Ephesus. As soon as he gets there, he finds disciples um, that are already established. These disciples are disciples of John. They don't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, as, as Paul teaches about the way, about Jesus Christ, and about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, the text says that he lays hands on them, and they are baptized in the Spirit of God, and God births that church through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul goes into the synagogues, and he begins to preach and teach, and they won't have it. Um, they speak evil of Christ, and after two months, I believe the text says, he departs and he begins focusing in on the disciples. He's at the church at Ephesus for a total of three years. And God does what the text says. I think it's in Acts chapter number uh, 19. Um, he just recounts the glory of the New Testament church there and the, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Um, Acts chapter 19 and verse 10 actually says that as a result of this ministry, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both the Jews and the Greeks. That God had done, quote, unusual miracles to the point that the Apostle Paul would drop a handkerchief and um, people would be healed and demon-possessed people would be freed, that miracles were done and that the glory of Christ was made known throughout all of Asia such that the Word of God um, was propagated and all heard. That they'd influenced everyone, both Jew and Greek, and Acts chapter number 19 says, And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And it wasn't just a, a mouth profession. It wasn't just superficial um, um, acclamation or attachment um, to Christianity. Man, these people were gloriously saved. I mean, the, the, the occult was so prominent there that chances are as they came, they left the occult. And the text says in Acts chapter number 19 that they gathered around and they burned a bunch of occultish or magical books, uh, incantation spells, who knows what was always in it, but they had, they, had, they, had, they had deemed that it was unworthy of Christ, that, that Jesus Christ had so invaded their lives in the corporate body there at Ephesus that, that it affected who they were, such that it says they, took all their, they gathered their books up and they went out and they, they burned them all. And the text says in verse 19 it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver they had burned. So, and it says that immediately after, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. That they had such an affection for Christ. They were so transformed that it transformed their lives. And they didn't get together and say, man, these books are kind of like probably not a good idea. You know, there's a library in town. We should just take them and sell them. They had saw it as such contrast and opposition um, to, to, to allegiance to Christ that they said $50,000 or 50,000 pieces of silver, which would equate today to be an astronomical amount, um, is not worth, um, is not worth it. We're going to go, we're going to burn it all. And they grew mightily as a result of it, it says, and, 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 and the word of the Lord prevailed because of their devotion to Christ. And it raised such a ruckus in Ephesus that, um, that Acts chapter 19 recounts a craftsman, a tradesman, who actually um, would weld and he would um, mold uh, silver images and idols 
and he would sell those. And they got together and he said, boys, uh, Paul's ruining our trade. I mean, we're not making as much money. And when that didn't take quite the ground that he wanted, he said, and more than that, um, the goddess of Diana is not receiving the worship that she does. And immediately an outcry, an uproar um, just, just, just blew in the city. And they, 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 they went to where the Christians were, took a couple of them captive. Paul hears, and he's like, i got to go. The disciples say, no, they'll kill you. Somebody actually talked some common sense into them and says, you have nothing to hold them for. Let them go. Eventually, Paul would leave. Um, as a result of the, the, um, the, the strife that was there among the people, and God would take him to another area. After a couple of areas, he would be traveling back by Ephesus, and he would stop in. And this church was still thriving. It was moving for Jesus Christ. At this point, elders have been established. Either, either, either Paul appointed them prior, or in his absence they appointed them. But what you have when Paul returns seems to be a fully functioning, thriving, healthy body serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter number 20, what you see is you see the Apostle Paul give his last words um, to the elders that are there at Ephesus. And he gives just one of the great, greatest exhortations to pastors and elders. And he just calls them to take heed their own lives, but also to take heed for the, for the flock of God. Why? Because they've been bought with a price. And men know that wolves are going to come in and they're going to, they're, they're going to, they're going to seek to just ravage the flock. And, and you be ready. You know, you be on point. Like if, you, if, you, if you've ever seen a faithful shepherd out there who stands in the door and guards the flock, even with his own life, man, you've got to be that. You know, there's, they're coming. All right? This is not speculation. You know, this is the way the church is designed. And if you've learned anything over the last three years, then you know that there's not only opposition within the world, but no, it will come from within the church. And you need to be ready. And he gives that exhortation, man, and, 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 and he just he, he exhorts them and they cry and there's tears that are shed because of the relationship that he had, he had formulated with those people. And there was just a bond there um, that, was, that was unbreakable between Paul and the people of God such to the point that, 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 that I believe that they trusted Paul with their lives. They loved Paul with, 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 to the point of death, I would, I would argue, um, because of the great ministry that he had there and what God did through him. And he was no doubt a father to most of them. Um, as he gave his life three years day in and day out for the cause of Christ by serving and honoring him through that church, even to the point of persecution and death. And I think that in part at least, that that's one of the reasons that we find in Revelation chapter 2 such commendation. You know? Why? Because... They heard the Word of God through Paul and they listened to the Word of God through Paul. They, they believed that he was a man of God, sent from God, preaching the Word of God, and they, they heeded his warning. And you see that in chapter 2, don't you? Verse number 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them liars. You persevered in chapter three or verse number three. You're patient. You've had patience, and you've not become weary. Verse number six. You know you, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They're preaching false doctrine, and you've given your life to it. And I know that Jesus Christ looks and he says, "I know it. I know your works." He says, "It literally it's where we get our word." energy from he's like i know your labor i know you're active i know you're engaged i know your labor he says it's a different word from work 
It has a negative connotation with it in the sense of a beating. It's like I know the, the energy that you put into this church, even for Christ's sake. And I know how hard it was. I know the beating that you took. I know the trouble and the weariness. It could be translated that weariness or toil that you labored in. He says, I understand your patience, your perseverance, your endurance. And you have. He goes on to say, I know that and you have. It's almost the exact same three words. He says, I know what you've been through, but you didn't weary and you weren't beaten to the end of quitting and you you did persevere and you did endure and no doubt as a result of it, God gave you an influence within the church and within that community. You know, Ephesus was a great it may be a word play or a picture play here. To those who would have understood Ephesus, they would have known the great influence that they had in all the world. Why? Because they were a seaport. They would have been the area in which the nations, one area in which the nations touched down. It would have been made up of every ethnic group that you could possibly find among the Roman province, um, Jew and Greek. Um, and it may be that that's what he's saying here in some sense, that you like Ephesus, you, you, you know the influence that they have. But what you'll find too also historically is that in the, in the, in the area of Ephesus, because it was a seaport, that often um, debris and silt would come up and it would begin to take over the harbor. They would have to periodically, every few decades, actually dredge it out. Otherwise, they would lose the seaport. And what you have today in Ephesus is actually the city that is established that is now six miles away from the sea. They've lost their influence as a seaport. Why? Because they did not do the work. That's the idea here. That the church at Ephesus um, is running the risk if they're not willing to, to continue to labor and do the first works. They're going to lose their influence. Why? Because God had given them a tremendous influence in the culture such that, that, that it overturned and upriled in a negative but a positive way um, the, church, the, the, the community there at Ephesus. Um, God gave them open doors for evangelism. God was saving them there. God was doing glorious work. And I believe that that's part of the emphasis that is being made here. And that's why the author here in verse number one says, these says who? He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, right? The author's who? It's Christ. He identifies himself there as he references chapter one and verse number 20 when we know it's the Messiah. And he says, I've got them in my right hand. I hold the pastors of the churches. I govern. I hold them up. And I'm the one who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. I'm the one who keeps the fire burning. I'm the one that if you influence anybody for the glory, uh, if you influence anybody uh, for the cause, it's going to be because I keep it going. Right? And that's why the great judgment comes at the end. He says, this is who I am. I uphold the lampstands. I'm the reason that you have the influence. I put the seaport there. I'm divinely sovereign over it. Know this, that, 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 that if you walk your own way, I'll, I'll take it away. I'll take your influence away. You'll no longer be a seaport. You'll no longer be a touchdown for the nations. You'll, no, you'll lose your influence. You'll no longer be a light. That's the risk that they're running here. And, the, the, and, and that would have sounded tremendously... Um, um, exhorting. It would have been a great warning to them. Why? Because of the goodness of God that they had tasted in His activity within that local church. And God was among them in just a miraculous way. And He looks at them and He says, I know your works. 
I know it. Like, I know you. In effect, he's saying, I know the long days, I know the sleepless nights, I know the battles. It's a commendation. I know, I know what you're fighting, I know how prone you are to weariness. I know your loyalty to purity. I know the sound doctrine uh, to, to the point of seeming exhaustion. I know it. I see the fight and it's commendable. I'm, I'm among you. I know it because I'm, I'm there. This church wasn't a church that knew the meaning of compromise. They were willing to die upon the heel of doctrinal purity and... Um, and in some sense, they probably did in, in many ways. Um, the text says that they were willing to battle evil men. You know, this wasn't a church in an oasis you know, who didn't have to fight for its purity. There's no doubt that it had its share of crooks, its Pharisees, its apostates who tried to enter into the church and bring forth false doctrine. But they stood fast. You know? They heeded the words to Timothy, who was probably an elder at Ephesus. You know, get, don't give heed to doctrines of devils. Take heed unto thyself and thy doctrine, Paul writes to Timothy. 2 Corinthians 11.3, you didn't have to worry about this. Paul writes to Corinth, I fear lest somehow that the serpent beguiled Eve by his craftiness, so, may, so may, your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, don't receive him. These men didn't. These elders heeded the warnings. They wouldn't let the Nicolaitans in who were preaching a false doctrine of, uh, that, that engaged or that, that, that promoted sexual immorality and pagan idolatry, such that in uh, early first century, Ignatius, an early church father, I'm not, I'm not promoting his doctrine, I don't even really know what he believed, but he writes historically of the church at Ephesus. He actually writes a letter such that he says these words, quote, you all live according to the truth. This is their testimony. And no heresy has come among you. Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone. If he speaks of anything except concerning Jesus Christ and truth. This is what Ignatius says about Ephesus. Like you're known throughout the world and among the churches. You, 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 you just, you're in love with the truth. I've learned that certain persons, he says, pass through you bringing evil doctrine. And you didn't allow it. You didn't allow them to sow the seeds among you, for you stopped up your ears that, so that you might not receive the seed sown by them. You are arrayed, he says, from head to foot in the commandments of Jesus Christ. What a church. I mean, in every way would be someone today that we would commend. Like if you're moving to Ephesus, I know there's many local congregations. Like this is the church that you need to be a part of. I mean, it's said of them that they're arrayed from head to foot in the, in the, in the commandments of Jesus Christ. I mean, they're, they're, you want a shepherd that'll protect your flock. You want somebody that'll guard your family. You want somebody that'll tell you the truth. Go to Ephesus. God's doing amazing things. Let's talk about the miracles. But, but, it's, it, but it's no doubt because these people are arrayed from head to foot in the commandments of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I know it. Like, I know that. Jesus, I'm among you. And he's not simply saying, I've gathered data. You know, I've, you showed up at work at 7.30. You left at 5 p.m. You took a lunch at 12. The, the word there, no, means to comprehend the meaning of something. I understand you. I know your labors. I know why you did it. And I know why you move. God is gracious. This isn't a perfect church, but it was a, a blessed church. No church is a perfect church. But it can be a faithful church. And then we come to the admonishment. Verses 4 to 6. So you see the acclamation. I don't think I told you that. Number 4 was the acclamation. Yeah, he, 
he, he gives them some commendation. It's a true commendation. Isn't that wonderful? You know, that our Lord, the Lord is so gracious, you know. Um, we are fallen creatures, you know. Like you wonder some days if you do anything that honors the Lord when you try. It seems like even my greatest works seem to be meddled with sinfulness, you know. Sometimes it's hard to see you know, after you do something, whether you even did it for yourself or you did it for Christ. You wonder if it's, if all of it's just meddled with some of that, you know? You just want to serve and honor Him and, and we can become so distressed and so depressed and so discouraged thinking, man, I'm never good enough. And that's why we have to realize that God doesn't expect you to be perfect. That God accepts us in Christ and takes, etern- and takes temporal things and does eternal things with them as we, as we by faith pursue Him. So we're not arguing for a perfect church. But we're arguing for a church that, that, that is engaged in the things of Christ, for the cause of Christ, out of love for Him. And He takes those, even though they're meddled with our fallenness, and He uses them for His glory. And that's what we see here. But even in that, um, He almost just presents that. I think. I think that it's a true commendation. But at the same time, I wonder if that only brings the warning even greater. Right? That the warning coming now is so great and should bring weight with it because primarily that this is possibly the most influential church in all the New Testament. I mean, we see its birth. Um, We have a letter written to it in Revelation. Paul writes to Ephesians. Paul began it. Um, Paul left them. They're fully functioning. God did amazing things. We see the birth of it. We see the life of it. We see it um, sustained throughout history. We see the great words. We don't have any other testimony of the church like that throughout all of Scripture. Um, God has truly, uniquely blessed this congregation. And I think it's because in in correlation with their, their adherence to truth and their love for God, and, and you know they had love. Why? Because he says, that's the warning. You left it. That, that all the works that they had done in the beginning, they were built upon the foundation of love. And it's in this moment that Jesus comes and he says, I'm in the midst of you and I know your works. Like, that's a great thing. But at the same time, that could be one of the scariest things. Why? Because he says, I know your works. I just don't know them in a, in, a, in a data entry type of way, but I know them in a, a unique um, re- relational type of way. Like I see into your heart, son. Like I know that you just did a good thing, but I also know why you did the thing. And that's what he looks at Ephesus and he begins to see in the life of this church a defection from Christ, not in truth. Um... But in love. Thus he says, repent and do the first works in the admonishment in 5b, verse 5 and verse and in the second part. And these letters embody Christ's concern. This letter particularly embodies Christ's concern that his people be a holy witness for him in the midst of a godless culture. And that God created the church to be influential in the surrounding world, wherever we may be. And that this church is running the risk of losing that reality and experientially communing with Christ in such a way 
that it actually changes the world. And I believe that this is not only possible, I believe that this is God's design. That we would live within the midst of a godless culture in such a way that His light would shine forth. And He is saying to this church, you've been that. And now, you're running the risk. And in all reality, that's the only reason you exist. So if you begin to defect, your light is gone, and I'll remove you from the place that you are. That's the weight of the introduction. Again, he's among the lampstands. He's the one that he's the high priest that sustains the light. He's trimming the wick. He's adding the oil. He's removing the waste. And here he wants to remove the waste. What's the waste? A lack of love for the one who saved them. A lack of love possibly for others. A lack of love possibly for the lost. When you read verse 7, it's actually very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Because the promise will be that if you overcome, what you'll eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Adam and Eve in the garden, God's people, with commandment and divine enablement to do what? To spread their image to the ends of the earth. And to take dominion. What happened? One thing. That's it. They did one thing. They stole a piece of fruit. Is that really enough, you might think, to warrant being cast out of a garden never to return? To be removed from your place, right? So that was, that was the risk that they ran in the Garden of Eden. I mean, they were given a, a divine position, a privilege, um, Adam and Eve, that was just beyond measure. I mean, it doesn't even compare today to what we have. And God warned them that if they did this one thing, He would take them out. He would remove them. They would be expelled. And He's doing the same here at Ephesus. And, and our natural inclination as fallen humans is to look at it and say, man, that, that's a little harsh, isn't it? And maybe that seems harsh because we don't understand the gravity of what happened that day. In our fallen, spiritually detached, and at best, hazy understanding of who God is and who we are, we fail to grasp the reality of what happened in the garden. And granted, we have somewhat of a seeming superficial excuse, right? We're fallen. We can't understand. Our minds are darkened. The world revolves around us. We're self-consumed. We're by nature prideful. We're conceited and think higher of ourselves than we ought and lower of God than we should. And thus we make God into our own image. And as sinners, we don't understand the weight and the gravity, the full character and the weight of God. We don't understand His holiness and the fact that He's light and that there's no darkness in Him at all and we can't fathom um, a room like that without darkness. And then when we do, it's so bright that we want to, 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 to huddle away from it. And we realize that even in that moment that it's teaching us God is other than us. He's different than us. That's the idea of holy. Not only that, that He's perfect or sinless, but that he's, he's, he's totally other than us. As far as his way, that's why His ways are far above our ways. He's the total contrast of what we are not. No wonder we enter into this world with a skewed concept of what and who and how He should operate. We're lost by nature. But not Adam. Adam was not born perfect in any measure, but, but created in, in an innocent image of God in such a state that he was able to serve and honor God in a unique place of privilege. 
He received the Word of God directly from God. There was no question what it said. He communed directly from God day to day as they would walk in the garden. There was a relationship with Him and it was unique and it was different. That He was blessed beyond measure. And you say, like, give the guy a break. I mean, he made one mistake, right? Like we all have a bad day. Not Adam. Not Adam. 1 Timothy 2.14 says, And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. No, he was not deceived. He did not make a mistake that day. He did not fail um, and, and, and made the wrong choice that day. He, in the place of ultimate privilege and communion with God, with the command and ability to take the image of God and fulfill that mandate, said, that day, no, I will not. He, understanding greater than we ever will until we see Him face to face, knew God in a unique fashion. And on that day, He said, I will not. No doubt because His love for whatever was stripped away and attached to something else. You see, the problem is not. I used to think the problem is, is with us is that, that the world in a lost state, they just don't love. And that's not true at all. The problem is not that the world doesn't love and they don't know how to love. God has innately given us this, this inherent love as, as image bearers and human creatures. And the problem is not that we don't love. It is that we love the wrong things. It is not that we're jealous. It is that we're jealous over the wrong things. It's not that we're angry and it's ultimately sinful. It's because we're angry at the wrong things. It's not because we, we don't have the capacity to joy because we're not Christians. The, the reality is, is that non-Christians know exactly how to rejoice and how to have joy and happiness. It, it doesn't sustain itself because it's ultimately in other things. But the problem is, is that their joy is in everything else than God. That's the idea, but not Adam. Adam doesn't get the darkened mind. He, he was in a place of utter privilege. You ever wonder why the... The, the nation of Israel came under such judgment from God. What about the other nations, Lord? That was a question commonly throughout the Old Testament. You know, like Assyria and Babylon are coming in, but, but look at them. They're worse than we are. Why is judgment coming upon us? Because Israel was in a unique place of privilege. They had the oracles of God. They had the fathers. They had, they had the Word of God. They had the, the cloud that led them in through the darkness and into the promised land. They tasted the grapes. They, they beat the Canaanites. The Philistines were nothing. They had kings like David um, who, 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 who shepherded the, 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 the flock of Israel in, in, in a blessed way. Sure, he got it wrong at times, but God uniquely blessed this, this nation beyond all others. And, and, and that's why the judgment comes so gravely. Why? Because you have such knowledge. That's why in, in Matthew, in the Gospels, there's just such a contrast and, a, and an opposition between Christ and, his, and, and, and the Pharisees. Why? Because if anybody should know better, they should know better. You know, in Sunday school this morning, and they knew it. They knew it. They, they didn't think God was too harsh. The Jews understood. Matthew 21. Jesus gives a parable. And says there's a landowner has a vineyard. He leases it out. He sends servants to go get the fruit. They, they, they kill the servants. They keep doing it. Finally, um, finally, he sends his son. He says, they'll respect my son. They don't. What happens? Um, uh, they kill the son. Surely they'll respect my son. No, 
No. Jesus looks at him and says, what do you think we should do with these people? And the Jews says, say, you should kill them all. You should kill them all. That's justice. We learned Sunday school this morning, David and Nathan. Nathan rebukes them, gives them a parable. And says, this is what somebody did to a shepherd. David, what, 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 what should we do with this guy? He stole the only sheep that a guy had. And he was rich beyond measure. What should we do with him, David? He should, he should be judged fourfold. That's right. He looks at him and he says, you're the man. You're the man. You know, he's doing at Ephesus this morning. He's building them up saying, this is your privilege. This is where you were. Remember what God did in the beginning. You remember that? You remember when God saved you? You remember when He pulled you out of the darkness? You remember when you're running around not knowing what to do with your life? You're depressed and angry and like joy. You know there's a God in heaven, but you didn't know how to find Him. And Jesus Christ reaches down through the Word of God and, and, and enlightens the darkened soul, the, the, the darkened areas and goes to the deepest recesses and shows you the way and even gives you the strength to run to Him. You remember that? You remember the privilege that you had? Remember when you had ears to hear and eyes to see? You remember when your love was just immeasurable for Christ because His love was no doubt seen as immeasurable to you? What would you think about a church? You know? Who once knew the grace of God in such a way that miracles were done, the Word of God was preached and they were utilized to reach all of Asia. I mean, he understood the doctrines of uh, the doctrine of, of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. I mean, Paul wrote to you and he told you about the Christian life in Ephesians. I mean, just doctrine high and holy revealed mysteries unto you, instructed you on the family, gave you the full armor of God in picture. I mean, just you, you know more than probably all the other churches put together. That's the idea. And yet your zeal for Christ, your zeal for others, your zeal for the lost, it's gone. You say, but it's just one thing. Yeah, but it's the only thing. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Not only is it just one thing, but it's everything. That what we read at the beginning of this portion of Scripture, or at the, end, at the beginning of this service, our brother Robert came and he read Deuteronomy chapter number one, 6 and verses 1. And the, great, the greatest commandment. What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. This is the sum of all Christian teaching, Jesus says in Matthew, as well as in Mark. In Mark, he actually argues that it is not only the chiefest of it all, but it is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That you, brother and sister, you, outside of the kingdom of God, you, boys and girls, were created in the image of God for one sole purpose. And that is to love God with everything that you are and everything that you have. That that is the chiefest, the, that's what, the first commandment, the, the, the foremost commandment, the preeminent commandment, and from that flows your love to others. That I can't tell you exactly with details what was embodied in this warning and judgment. There's some debate over that in regards to what exactly was meant by losing his first love. Some argue that it's a love for Christ. Some argue, yes, that it's a, they lost their love for the church and love for others. Some lost that they, or argued that they, they lost their love for, for, for the lost. And many people take different positions. I'll give you my position. I think it's all. I think it's all. I think that once your love for Christ and the Gospel begins to wane, 
um, that, that apathy and indifference or whatever reason um, you, you, you begin to lose your love for others and your love for the lost. And therein lies the offense at Ephesus, right? You have this externally faithful, strong, orthodox church. The sermons are great. They exalt the character of God. They speak of this great God who is holy. He's kind. He's righteous. He's just. He's wisdom. He's the very definition of grace. He's the one in whom all the souls of the world and the earth should delight as they see Him in all of His glory. And their love is waning. A pulpit that used to preach right but simple truths. They were hot with zeal because they were born out of a true communion with the Father through the Son and a vibrant life enabled by the Spirit and the Word of God is no doubt now becoming puffed up because, and waxing eloquent and long because of what they know and what they've done. I mean, look at us. Who preaches like we preach? I mean, who has a confession, that a statement of faith that compares? I mean, who holds to the truth like us? And in their pride and in their arrogance, they forget where they came from. They forget that the only reason that, that, that anyone is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that if we measure up to anything in this life, it's to God be all the glory because He takes dust of the earth and makes trophies of grace out of them. That they begin to lose their compassion for their fellow image bearers. They begin to wield the sword without any compassion or grace. I mean, they're battling apostasy, but it's not, it's not pleading with men's souls. You know? That's a danger, isn't it? I love to follow apologetics and people who defend the faith, and, and I just come across some reform guys and I'm repulsed. You know? I mean, sure, they're defending the faith. And yes, their, 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 their content of their doctrine is, is just all in line, but they do it in such a derogatory way and they just want to win a battle and they want to say, gotcha, and they want to win a war when the purpose of teaching the truth and battling apostasy is to say to that soul that if you believe that, you're without Christ. Run to Him. Look to Him. You know, we can even wield the sword without a lack, with, 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 a, with a total lack of compassion. That was the exact problem that, that Jesus Christ had with the Pharisees. I mean, they were the religious elite of the day. They were the theologians of the hour. They were the rabbis to sit under. These were all. And what did they lack? They lacked a true life, uh, thriving faith with God. No doubt they lacked love. And he says in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you know, like you men, you go out and you pray and you do it to be seen of men. You know, you, you go out and you teach and you preach so that, that people will listen and they'll take notes and they'll say, what a great guy that is. What a, what a wonderful teacher. And you'll say on that great day when they stand before and they'll look and say, well, Lord, where's my rewards? And they'll say, you had it. You got the acclamation that you wanted. You, you, you loved yourself more than you loved God. No doubt the problem of the Pharisees is that, that they battled the, 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 the fight of faith, but they battled it for the wrong reasons. We can be a doctrinally sound church. He's not, he's, not, he's not arguing against their doctrine. I want you to get that right. They're teaching. There's not one warning against what they're teaching. It's all, commend all commendation. It's all commendation. The problem is not with what they're teaching. It's not, it's not with church polity. It's not with their leadership structure. It's not with their outreach programs. It's with... Every, it's with that one thing that is to motivate it all. 
It is that thing which our obedience is to grow out of. That our obedience is to grow out of a gratitude and a love for the pursuit of Christ and the glory of God. That outward conformity to a code of conduct, he's saying, is not enough for Christ. That he desires, a heart desires to obey him out of a love for him and a pursuit of his glory. That that's the reality. And the reality is for us today that this is a warning to us. And I say this to you and I say it to myself. Um, Because I look at you and I think, this is a church that's arrayed head to toe in the truth. I do. I look at you and I revel sometimes. I just just see a faithfulness. You make the job, many of you, make the job of a pastor easy, you know. There's challenges along the way. Um, but battling false doctrine has not been a, a problem in this church, to be honest with you. There have been wolves that have came in. And we just felt it, but it's been few and far between. You know? Why? Because you won't allow it to happen. You won't let it happen. And I thank God for that. You know, I don't have to stand up as a, you know, and, 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 and actually teach on a lot of these issues. You know, the whole... CRT, social justice. I was talking to a guy the other day. I said, I didn't preach one sermon on that. Didn't have to, you know? But these people got a head on their shoulders. They understand the truth. They know what they're doing, you know? Some days I wonder if I'm going to get up and say anything that they don't know at all. (laughs) You know? These people, they know. But Jesus knows why you do that. The danger of this church is to confuse... Um, obedience to the truth externally as always love for Christ and it's not true. That you can actually serve someone for their namesake and not serve them because of love. Did you know that? That's a reality. You men work. (laughs) Some of you ladies work. You know. You go and you serve them for that company's namesake but but I almost guarantee that almost all of you, none of you do it out of a, a genuine love for that person. That tyrant, you can do it, you can serve under a tyrant. Why? Because of what they, um, what they hang over your head out of a love for yourself. You can do it for self. And the reality is, is that there are people all throughout the world, even with doctrinally sound confessions or statements of faith that are preaching right thinking. And they have, they, they have little to no love for God. They're working for merit. To their, but they're kind and they're good. But that's not the same as love. Right? Love is kind, but not all kindness is love. That kindness can actually be pride masquerading around as, as love. Why to receive acclamation? You just want to hear, man, what a, what a beautiful person you are. I've worked like that. A genuinely moral person outside of Christ in my early life, just wanting people to love me. So I'm kind to others. I respect one another. That's a good thing externally, but it's not enough. It's not the one thing. That that kindness, that that love, it's everything. And it should be that which promotes everything that we do. That's the idea. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Have you ever, have you ever just wrestled with the weight of that? And he said, yeah, you know, love is kind, love is uh, patient, love is long-suffering, love are these things. But prior to that, he says, that if you, if, if you don't have love, like it means nothing. You can give your body to be burned. You can do the greatest of ultimate sacrifice. Right? And people do that all that Martyrs. Give what it seems to be. And you know what he says? You do it without love. It's, it's, what? it's nothing. It's zero. It's not even zero. It's nothing. 
It doesn't even have the rim attached to it. It's nothing. It, it, it equates to nothing. That we could run the risk as a church of adhering to a body and content of doctrine, yet lack love for Christ as the basis and fail to love one another. Do you truly love one another? I'm going to ask you, how do I know that? It's not through kindness. It's through sacrifice. It's through the sacrifice of oneself for another. You know? It's not necessarily taking out of your abundance, and I've got free time this week, because I think I'll do a good deed. But the very nature of love itself, have this mind which was in you, in you which was in Jesus Christ, right? He became a servant, humbled himself, even to the point of death, that, that, that the, the ultimate ethic, one of the ultimate ethics in Christianity is self-sacrifice. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Somebody comes to you and they have a true need and you look at them and you say, I just don't have time this week. Why? Because you're being prudent. Love seems in the Scriptures to be displayed ultimately in sacrifice. That it's in those moments where you actually truly love another. Where you say, yes, I don't have time. But I'll make time. I'll sacrifice something that I need to do, I should be doing. But it's not as important as you. You know, I'll reach out into the world. I'd love to get involved in evangelism, but, but I just don't have time. You know what that's saying? I'm unwilling to sacrifice. I'm unwilling to give of myself beyond. And that's not to say that you give up everything or things that God requires you to do. You need a family. You have a family. You've got to take care of it. You've got to do these things. But ultimately, love is not measured in holding a door for one another uh, necessarily. But it is, seems to be measured in the reality that Jesus Christ gave His life when He did not need to and should not have had to. But He was so compelled by the love for His bride that He lays down His majesty's right, His glory from a heavenly realm. And He takes upon Himself a human flesh. Why? So that He could die for you. He could have said, I don't have to do that. I don't have time for that. But he made the sacrifice to commend love towards you, to you, and towards you, in saving sinners of whom I am chief. We run the risk of confusing our service to Christ for our motive of serving Him, right? Because of our sinful nature, we, we just, it's, it's possible, maybe even common for us to believe that the task is what brings glory to Christ, right? But if we did it, and we did it for His name's sake, externally, we're good. But we can be a very dutiful people, have our checklist made for each day, check off those, and at the end of the day, say, man, I really did something today. And in doing that, you really did nothing. But the church of Ephesus is, John is writing, Jesus Christ is admonishing. He's commending, but he's also saying, you know better. You are of the most privileged. Look at you. I know your works. And you know them too. Um, and maybe that's what makes the condemnation even more striking. And then you see the, um, the call there, right? What does he say? Remember, verse 5, therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else. And he commends to us to repent. He commends to us to think, to meditate, to remember that which was accomplished at the first. 
Not to look necessarily at all the externals and the details because they're all different. And some of you can walk away and think that your relationship with Christ or your conversion experience wasn't quite comparable to someone else's. Why? Because um, you weren't a drunkard and you didn't make a 180 degree turn. And you can wonder but that's not the point here. The reality is, is that we look to all those things that are common to, to man in the salvation experience, the joy that it gives, the peace, the forgiveness, the rest in Christ. You're to look to that. You're to, you're to glean into the gospel. You're to magnify Jesus Christ in your thinking as you think back upon what he accomplished through that gospel message. And that is to be the foundation of which, of which you are to run on and build. You're to repent. And it seems like a, seems like a harsh word too, doesn't it? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We got this idea of John the Baptist just out there, um, just with an angry face, and just wanted to just wanted to condemn them all and pour fire down from heaven. But in reality, I want to—I'll probably get into this more next week. I got to preach another sermon on this. Um, but repentance is just one of the most glorious doctrines in all of Scripture. Man, repentance is only negative when you love something else. It is. It's only when God calls you from that thing. Like, and you look at it and you say, what, why do I have to give that thing up? You know? Like, why? why? It's, it's only, repentance is only hard. It's only difficult. It's only impossible. It's only, it's only drudgery. It's only, it's only um, anguish and, and exhausting whenever, whenever you look at that thing and, he, and it weighs more than Christ. Like, when you love Him. Like, you love your wife. It's true love. You know? That thing's not even comparable. And you're telling me that if I give that thing up, I, I'll get more of you? You know? In fullness and in holiness and righteousness and perfection. Um, it's because we have a skewed view of, of God and of us, right? Like th- this, is a, this, this is not a, a harsh rebuke. This is a, a, a call to His church who knew Him and knows of His grace. Come home. Come back. You know? It's the calling of, of the son, the prodigal son home. You know, like you're in a far country. What you thought was great is not. But know that the door's wide open. Come home. That's the doctrine of repentance for the church. He's, he's looking at Ephesus and he's I'm in the midst of you. I know where you're at. And I know that you're, you're on a downward spiral. Come, you're in a far country. It's the beginning. You begin to walk out into the field before you get out there and the lampstand's removed. Come home. Restore your relationship with the Father. Indulge and engage in the communion with the man whom you've known all your life who's dedicated himself to you. Come home. Jesus Christ to this day is saying to the church at Ephesus, not with a harsh, angry face, but with a church that he had bought by his own blood. He's saying to his bride who is becoming a prostitute because her affections are being gripped by another man in the world saying, come home. We've covenanted together. I've I've poured out my blessings upon you. Come home. And maybe this morning he's saying to some of you who, whose love has been has been transferred from the glories of Christ and the majesty of Christ and the and the person of Christ. He's saying to you and maybe us as a church come home. You know of the glory of Christ. Why do you live in the world? Why do you run after every other woman or man when I am here? Come home. Repentance is a glorious picture. It's not saying, I'm going to take this away from you. It's saying, turn to me 
and look at all that you have. It's because we fail to repent because we lose our first love. When the world begins to take our affections one by one, and His glory, majesty, and beauty begin to pale in comparison to the world. Uh, but when He is all in all and He is preeminent and your love of God is ripe for Him, um, there is nothing that you won't lay down. And that's why men go to the stakes. Thus, we must guard our hearts and realize that our professed love for Christ is in a most hazardous condition if it is not producing a fervent love for His people and burning love for the lost. That was the problem. It was not with their doctrine. It was that their doctrine did not produce, produce the intended results, which was to produce um, a love for Christ. A love for Christ. I want to read this to you and we'll be done. This is a quote by Thomas Vinson, um, a Puritan, who wrote a book called The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. And he writes these words. The light of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass, as when the soul is fled from it without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is dead faith. And a Christian without love is a, to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in sins and trespasses. Without love to Christ, we may have a name of Christian, but we are holy without the nature. We may have a form of godliness, but we're holy without the power. Christ knows the command and influence which love to Him and the truth and strength of it has. How it will engage all of other affections and, and His disciples for Him that He has for their love. Their desires will chiefly be after Him. Their delights will be chiefly in Him. Their hopes and expectations will be chiefly from Him. Their hatred, fear, grief, anger will be carried forth chiefly unto sin as offensive unto Him. And they'll abandon it. He knows that love will engage and employ for Him all the powers and faculties of the soul. Their thoughts will be brought into captivity and obedience unto Him. Their understanding will be employed in seeking and finding out His truths. Their memories will be receptacles to retain them. All their senses and members of their body will be servants. Their eyes will see for Him. Their ears will hear for Him. Their tongues will speak for Him. Their hands will work for Him. Their feet will walk for Him as their gifts and talents will be as His devotion of servants. If He has their love, they will be ready to do for Him what He requires. They will suffer for Him whatever He calls them to. If they have much love for Him, they will not think much of denying themselves, taking up His cross and following Him wherever He leads them. And end quote. And that's the truth. A church that loves Christ needs no accountability in all honesty. Because their love for them is overwhelmed, is overwhelming. And the only thing that they could do is live, obey, and die for Christ. So may Christ be forever our first love. And may we nurture our souls as men and women, as families, first and foremost, in relationship to Christ, that it may pour out in the church and ultimately, in fact, a lost and dying world for His cause. And may they come because they see this ineffable love um, that you can find nowhere else but in Christ. And may they see it on you, church. People just like Christ, ready to forsake themselves, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. You're a lunatic, they'll say. You're a fool, they'll say. And let us be fools because of our love for Christ. Let us be dead and forgotten that He may live and His light may shine in the nations. 
May our may Christ forever be our first love. Father, we thank you and praise you for the love and glory of Christ. Father, I know that there are many, and even myself, that don't understand the fullness of that. And I don't know how to say it, Lord, in a way that is all that persuasive. Um, I don't know how to show them Christ like I want to. I don't know how to tell them of his ineffable benefits. I don't know how to tell them of the beauty of his father. I'm so limited in speech. I don't know how to rapture them into the heavens like John. I don't know how to express to them the love wherewith Christ has for lost men and women and children other than just to proclaim your word and trust you to teach their souls those realities. I know I seem like a fool to many. And if that's the case, may I bear that name well without the fear of man or the fear of loss that you might forevermore both temporally and eternally just magnify yourself and me May they forget the message. But may you show them Christ in such a way that they will never forget what they've seen or heard. Father, give them eyes to see, give them ears to hear, and do the same for me. Father, show us Christ and Him alone. Father, and you'll show them a faithful church. I pray, Father, that this would be a church and a people they're just robed with the glories of Christ. And that is ultimately manifested in holiness and love. Not at odds with one another, but a holy love. Different from the world, distinct in nature, because it's a gift that only Christ can give. So may we find it in Christ this day. Not in obedience, not in mechanics, not in structure, not in politics, but in Christ. And may he be the impetus of all our efforts. May he be the sole cause for leading my home. May he be the reason we're here. If not, Father, I pray with you that you'll take the light away, that we may not do more damage than good. I know that's your will, that we would be a zealous people born out of love for you. And if we're not, Father, may you use your Son to cause us to remember and to repent and to come home so that your name would be magnified in this place and throughout all the world. Father, we need you to do this because I don't know how, and I really can't. So do your work, Father. And I long to see it when it's accomplished. By the power of your spirit, we go. In Jesus' name, amen.